This is a little attempt to understand the far-reaching nature and the depth of anger in people. And I'm not immune, and I'm speaking from my own uh, experience and heart and person of anger, and I'm trying to understand uh, the uh, the reach of it and the depth of it, and then attempting to come up with uh, some hope uh, in terms of uh, a non-angry life. And this um, podcast is called "What Part of Us Isn't Angry," and it was um, it was prompted by the experience that I've had and that I continue to observe on the internet. Because one of the this is not in fact a cliche; it's not a put down of the internet. Uh, I'm on it just as much as you are. The uh, the, the the astonishing fact is that if you spend the time, which is corrosive, but many of us do, to read internet threads of comments on issues we're interested in, everywhere from um, the uh, the hype surrounding Hurricane Irene in New York, and I read, uh, oh, I must have read close to 420 uh, internet comments on the New York Times, their lead blog, relevant to the hype connected to Hurricane Irene. And what struck you immediately was the unbelievable uh, levels of anger that was being directed by people all over the place. There's no, there's no particular rightness or wrongness to the object of the anger. First, it was people who were angry at, at Mayor Bloomberg for what they regarded as unfair and ridiculous and um, uh, 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 hysterical evacuations in lower Manhattan or in the lower areas of Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens and so forth. And then there were the people who were attacking them, who were saying, you know, we do anything for safety. How dare you attack them? This is the only way to go, better safe than sorry. And then you began to have, as the drama unfolded of the coming of the hurricane and then the passing over of uh, the city by the hurricane and the aftermath, you had all these accusations. And it was, they were mainly abstracted accusations, you know, from Bill Goddard in Flatbush or from Mario Royce in, uh, in uh, Wisconsin. I mean, it was, uh, what struck you, though, was the degree of animus and incredible anger on the one hand by so-called, I guess, people on the left who were uh, who were uh, uh, angry at people who were lambasting the nanny state, as they saw it in Bloomberg, and the other people on the right who were doing the lambasting, and it was almost 50-50. It was a swords-crossing Alexander Hamilton Aaron Burr Weehawk in New Jersey, uh, really shocking series of venomous attacks on the writers of the various columns from left and right. And it continued throughout the entire weekend. And then uh, I don't need to tell you what the blogs are like in the uh, Christian sites, both on the uh, conservative side, on the liberal side. And here I speak as one who's been the recipient of a lot of these attacks uh, from the right in particular, some from the left, but mostly from the right, as it turns out. And the degree of mean, venomous, angry things that have been stated, say, against myself from people whom I do not know or people who I know who use anonymous names uh, or anonymous titles, whatever it is, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of of uh, angry ad hominem attacks uh, when uh, people 
don't know me at all or have only read something that they think or have put me in a category. And then it, of course, occurs on, on blogs on the left of the Christian world. So you have these fantastic attacks uh, from basically people that you don't know. Now, I'm not uh, excoriating that. I'm simply remarking on the fact that, that the Internet reveals something that obviously is true and was true prior to and apart from the Internet. That is, there are reservoirs. Deep, oil-rich reservoirs, kerosene-rich reservoirs underneath the surface of everyday people that bespeak enormous anger. This used to come out in headlines, you know, uh, man kills, uh, kills spouse, kids, self. And then it would interview um, the neighbors of the person in Co-op City who had done this terrible crime. And uh, they would always say, you know, he was such a mild-mannered fellow. We had no idea that this was going on. And no one who knew him had the slightest idea. This is a total shock to us that such a mild-mannered, you know, Clark Kent could have done this despicable and appalling crime. Um, the uh, same uh, goes with... Uh, um, uh, that character in the Stephen King's novel that I think Michael Douglas played, the, the guy who blows up his house uh, and shoots a whole bunch of people because he's an angry white male. But I've seen anger uh, on all sorts and conditions of all identities, genders, um, and ethnicities, and uh, uh, possible age groupings. Uh, I, you see anger from on the playground, and you see anger uh, uh, in 75-year-old men and sometimes in 75-year-old women. It is extraordinary. And what the internet has simply done. It has sort of shown that when people have the kind of ability to speak without being called on it, to use the current expression, uh, without their identity being known and being uh, sort of uh, unmasked for their anger, uh, feel free to vent what is already there. This is not a new phenomenon of human nature. It is simply a new window in a very ancient phenomenon, that reservoir, you know, journey to the journey to the center of the earth. Remember, they went down James Mason and Arlene Dahl, I think it was, and Pat Boone, and uh, it's been recently done again in 3D, and they went down and uh, they found uh, a couple of really awful creatures down there, way, way below the surface of the earth. And um, that's all that I'm saying. And I thought about the internet, internet uh, the degree of anger, because if you actually uh, sort of line all these comments up, whether it's Hurricane Irene or it's church issues or it's uh, comments against Obama or comments for the Tea Party or comments this, that, or the other thing, on any issue you want to name, uh, you will see a, um, uh, you will ask the question, what part of these guys, these people, isn't angry? I mean, it, it is it is obviously a vastly it's like a geyser uh, of 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 dark material that comes up that may have been kept underground or kept under leash or kept under control but was there and then when it had an opening and in this case it's internet uh, threads but on all fronts in all departments of life uh, what part of us isn't angry I was thinking about the wonderful and very heavy Stephen King novel Pet Cemetery. you may remember it it was made into a pretty good movie version with Fred Gwynn and uh, oh, a couple of actors in the 80s uh, who did a good job and in it um, 
uh, sadly, <clears throat> a, uh, a, a little child is killed by a truck uh, playing in the road outside his house. And uh, uh, the father um, uh, takes the body and surreptitiously uh, buries the child's body in an old uh, Indian cemetery on a hill nearby. This is in New England in some place like Maine or New Hampshire. And the child is buried, and then the child comes back. And uh, instead of being the sweet child, he comes back as Chucky, you know, uh, uh, Chucky too, the, the ascents, the ascents. And uh, this child comes back w w murderously spitting uh, horrible, violent, uh, sub-rational, libidinal hostility. And he comes back wanting to kill. And then, as you remember the story, this is not a spoiler because it's been out for years and years and years, this, uh, this old book. Um, the, the, the man's wife is killed. I think she kills herself, as I remember. I may be wrong, but I think she kills herself out of depression, something like that. And the poor husband who loved his son and he loved his wife, he's a good guy, he thinks, well, maybe if I bury her, she will come back and I can have her back because the poor woman, you know, and out of love, he goes and he buries her in the pet cemetery, which because we earlier found out that a cat came back, that's why it's a pet cemetery, but it's really a cursed, you know, shamanistic place. And uh, she comes back and she comes back, however, with a knife and she murders her husband who did this out of love and a misunderstood idea of wanting to hold on to her. Now, I thought to myself, well, now, this is interesting, isn't it? What is Stephen King getting at here? What he's simply saying is that when the, the kind of false, uh, the, the, the body, the, 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 the envelope, as it was called, the envelope for the self comes back, is, comes back after a few days, three days in the ground, it doesn't come back like Jesus of Nazareth, uh, um, you know, Mary, uh, Rabboni, um, it does not come back, uh, spread the word of my love to all creation from Judea to the uttermost ends of the earth. It comes back as a, a spitting, hostile, vengeful personage. And I thought to myself, you know, there's something there. There's something about the connection between the, the body that comes back as the spitting, hostile, malicious, dreadful, violent person, person entity that comes back in Pet Cemetery, and this kind of entity that is revealed in, uh, in these amazing uh, uh, internet uh, volatility. It's as if, you know, you see nice people on the outside. I was at a, at a Chick-fil-A, I think, the other day, and I said to Mary, you know, if you look at all these people, probably several of the people here who look like such nice, delightful people, who knows what they're doing on the internet? And I'm not talking about one obvious acting out. I'm talking about who knows what kind of comments somebody here is posting or what kind of uh, what he's saying that, that, that is mean, malicious, angry, and co-belligerent. Uh, who knows? You know, and of course, who does? It's like a church congregation. Who knows what's really going on? You never do. Uh, and even when it comes out, you only know a part of it. And that's why withholding judgment and always giving people the benefit of the doubt and always looking on, on people with charity is such an important um, thing to, to do. Now, I'll tell you what really broke the back on this for me, what part of us isn't angry, is because I learned something recently that was really, really moving and really, really striking. And I feel um, it has meaning, it's meaningful. And this is that. Oh, a current writer, that one of these unknown writers that I regard so highly because he was a visionary, although no one reads him today, uh, was named Philip Wiley. And as I've told you before, he wrote what were called Jeremiads or hotly polemical rants against all sorts of aspects of American culture and life. 
moms in his book, Generation of Vipers, Religion, The Established Church, John Foster Dulles, uh, The Eisenhower Conformity, American Materialism, American uh, Imperialism, most of all, Enduring American Ecological Predator, uh, uh, Lack of uh, Concern for Anyone Else that Was Really Rooted in Consumption. He went on and on from the time he, I think his first book of this kind was called Finley Wren, but you, you see it in his books, his sci-fi books, uh, especially in uh, When Worlds Collide, Triumph, Tomorrow, and most d d d deeply disturbingly in his last book in 1970, 71, entitled The End of the Dream. And when people do a lot of books about the end of the world, they write a lot of books about the end of the world as we know it, R-E-M, they're usually one, they're writers who would like to, they portray the end of the world because they like, they want the end of the world. Uh, Wiley had an extremely angry and hostile position in regarding his fellow men. He regarded uh, humanity as so flawed, he did have a kind of Jonathan Edwards uh, background here, and he did come from that kind of stock, uh, but that doesn't explain it at all. He was so sour on the nature of the human uh, being uh, that he uh, wrote a number of books in which everybody was killed, except for always a very few, and at the end of his life, his books, nobody survived. Now, isn't that interesting? So when he has uh, uh, Bronson Alpha, the planet that's gone out of its orbit, uh, orbit, destroy the planet Earth and when worlds collide that was made into a wonderful movie in 1951, and a very accurate movie, you sort of say, you know, he probably is applauding the end of the Hoover Dam and the flooding of Times Square. Well, you see it again and again, and his, uh, his persona was very, very angry. And so I um, had heard that he, uh, in addition to all these books, uh, sci-fi, uh, apocalyptic fiction, and these rants about American culture, especially one called, uh, I think it's on ethics, theory of ethics, one is called one, uh, uh, Generation of Vipers, and one is called The Magic Animal, not to mention Sons and Daughters of Mom, and uh, uh, these sort of sociological appalling attacks on everybody and everything. I um, had heard that his daughter, who um, uh, is named Karen Wiley Pryor, who's actually a very well-known marine biologist, and uh, um, she has some very interesting accomplishments, like learning how to train animals with a system of clicking, and also she wrote a distinguished book on uh, breastfeeding, which had a huge impact and sold a million copies in its day. But what is interesting, this is where I'm getting, is she wrote a, a little essay uh, called a, a Preface to My Father, Phil Wiley, and it was a preface to some stories he had written about fishermen. They're called the Crunch and death stories, and they're about a, a kind of a a, a, a a captain of a boat that takes charter passengers out from Miami to do deep sea fishing. These stories are written in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, and his mate named uh, Des Crunch Adams and Des Smith. And uh, Phil Wiley wrote these stories. And 49, maybe 59 of them, and they were humongously successful in the Saturday Evening Post. But what is interesting is what I'm going to read about these stories. She writes, Karen um, Wiley Pryor, at the introduction to the uh, selection of these Crunch and Dez stories that is uh, uh, dated and which she edited in 1990, 
My father, she writes Philip Wiley, was two writers. He was first Wiley the Furious Visionary, a preacher of the brimstone sort. She actually wrote Ferocious Visionary. This Wiley's vituperative attacks against American short-sightedness were written a full generation before various other things, the things that which they wrote became national concerns. His book, Generation of Vipers, a sermon on American hypocrisy, was virtually memorized by American servicemen during World War II. Yet Phil, she writes of her dad, was also Wiley, the gentle storyteller, who could amuse a little daughter at bedtime with ridiculous but moral fairy tales, and whose short stories about two Miami fishermen, Crunch and Des, beguiled Saturday evening post readers for almost 30 years. More than once, I have faced some irate Wiley fan who insists that the two authors could not, that's in italics, have been the same person. Usually, it is a crunch and des enthusiast. It is understandably hard for some people to imagine that the author of these merry, almost magical tales could have turned out polemics that the other Wiley was famous for. But, she continues, and bear with me, the stigmata are there. His fabulous lexical gifts used in these tales for white magic rather than black. Now, that is uh, the paragraph which got me thinking. There was a divide between um, uh, Philip Wiley, the Jeremiah of American pop culture in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and the author of the Crunch and Des stories of saltwater fishing that was so complete that it appears uh, to the reader of either of these personae of the same writer to be that they couldn't be the same man. They had to be two different people. So, uh, accordingly, I uh, decided to undertake a reading of the Crunch and Dez stories. There are 59 of them at least, and uh, I've only read a few, but I have read a few. Uh, uh, I actually have the book in front of me, and I've been reading these, and this prompted... Really, the sort of, I hope, the kind of linchpin or the positive part of this podcast, because in fact, Karen Wiley Pryor's preface reflects the experience that you have when you read these. I'm a avocational specialist in Wiley's notorious and visionary, and in many ways, very powerful and important works on sex and um, on ecology and on the atom bomb and science and instinct and Carl Gustav Jung uh, that made a modest and at one point Generation of Vipers a major impression on American literary life. But you do read these stories and they are delightful, magical as she says, sweet. You cry at least at two points in every one you read. They bespeak a, a young father, Crunch Adams, who has a very plain spoken wife who is apparently based on Wiley's wife, Karen's stepmother, Wiley's second wife. Uh, a plain spoken, direct, and very generous and warm and loving and somewhat sexy mother of Crunch's child, Billy, uh, the little baby. You, you see a wonderful father, a devoted and dear husband, a man of fairness 
tenderness, a man of grace who's constantly giving people um, um, space and rope and uh, grace to be themselves. You have all sorts of difficult, uh, mostly so-called rich, full-of-themselves people who charter these boats, who learn some life lesson about humility. Everybody's being humbled. Des is a deer. Uh, these are both men of tremendous force and very good physical shape who are constantly pulling their punches and not getting mad when they should. And they're constantly being proven right by their humility and sometimes by their dear and frail masculine traits, which are always to the good. And uh, every one of them, you, you end up crying. They're sort of like Irvin S. Cobb. They're like the Judge Priest stories. Now, remember when Irvin S. Cobb, who wrote these remarkable tales of grace, which are as graceful in practice as any stories you will ever read in American literature, when he died, people were so shocked by his last will and testament, in which he said some very negative things about the Christian church. His, here his books were all about the essence of Christianity, explicitly as a message for sufferers, the poor, the blind, the halt, and the lame, and also criminals and bad spirits who had been forgiven through the ministration of Judge Priest and others in a small Kentucky town. And there he showed himself to be very hostile towards the traditional Christian church, not towards Jesus Christ, but towards the traditional Christian church, uh, and not towards the Salvation Army, whom he saw as the real thing. Um, but people were shocked. They saw two different people. Well, in Wiley's case, the person that was seen by the public, this ranter, this polemicist, this harsh and mean fellow who, Mike Wallace, you can look on the internet and see the interview uh, from the 50s, I think it's 1956, in which Mike Wallace, the well-known television personality of that period, takes Wiley on and attacks him really very strongly for his uh, harsh, angry attitude towards anyone and everything. And you see Wiley, actually, who comes off quite well, but rather sort of a George Plimpton, a little bit odd, uh, kind of preppy, but an odd, preppy, almost weird person in his late 40s or mid-50s with his long cigarette holder. You'll laugh when you see it, although it, it's actually very pro-Jesus, though not pro um, the church. Uh, this um, shows this interesting person. Now, what does this say? It says that Philip Wiley, and what about you? Now, I'm, I'm asking you to think about yourself, and of course I'm thinking about me, who's definitely had moments in my career and life when eruptive anger and what is today called reactive uh, thinking and behavior came up. What about you? Um, here's this man who had one side, the side that everybody knew him for, when he was so, he was considered, he got 10,000 letters as a result of his book, uh, Generation of Vipers. Now, that's a lot of letters. Today, it would have been, you know, 80,000 internet hits or something, or 80,000 emails or more. But in the late 40s and early 50s, to receive uh, 10,000 letters was really something. And uh, here he was, and yet at the same time, this fellow down in South Miami or Rushford, New York, was was also turning out regularly. I mean, I have the, the list of the stories right in front of me. Every few months, beginning in uh, 1939, June 10th, and going through uh, July 1966, although the main period ends in 1956, he was turning out story after story after story of these delightful, um, dear, uh, young and growing older uh, 
fishermen who sort of wise up through their own frailty, their own forgivenesses, and their own humility, and their own acquired humility, and through their wonderful wife, um, who brings a kind of common sense to the equation, but with a deeply generous and devoted spirit, they they are wising up the rest of the world to be humble too. And these stories are just like Judge Priest stories. So what is going on? What is going on here? What part of it isn't angry? Well, the internet tells me that a heck of a lot of us are, or an enormous amount of people are sitting on, if not expressing, and now they have a very easy little hole in the defense where this steam from the pressure cooker of human malicious id can come firing out. Uh, what part of us isn't angry? And I'd say, well, not much. I'd like to know. That's all. What part of us isn't angry? I, I want to know. Uh, and um, I've been thinking then, and this is where I come to the conclusion of this podcast, what is it uh, that uh, explains this powerful division in Irvin S. Cobb, but more particularly in Philip S. Wiley, in, in, in Philip G. Wiley, between the crunch and death writer and the writer of um, The Sons and Daughters of Mom in 1969, whenever it was. What explains it in you? I mean, you're able, you and I are able to be the dearest, sweetest, kindest, most generous people uh, to some people, and the most hateful, cruel, malicious, vengeful, and bitter people towards others. I mean, they're, you know, they even say this about mass murderers. There were mass murderers who were extremely good fathers to their natural children. You know, you hear about a mass murderer, whether it's in a political setting or a World War II setting or a, or a, a serial killer setting. And you find out, if you actually study it, that there might have been somebody that they were just devoted to. It might have been their dog. It might have been a cat. It might have been their natural children. It might have been an adopted child. <clears throat> it might have been a woman. I mean, it might have been, you know, uh, look at uh, look at uh, Quasimodo, who the world regarded as a, as a hunchback fiend when he, he was completely, totally beloved, willing to give everything for Esmeralda, let alone his great bells initially. Everybody has a bit of love. It's quashed and stunted and distorted and suppressed and often turned into malice, hatred and resentment and bitterness and deep nihilistic lack of hope and desperate uh, desperate need to act out these tremendous forces inside people, male and female, old and young. And yet there is this possibility of the other. Well, I don't fully understand it. I My podcast has two points. Um, just this is a tremendous issue today. Just as I said the other day that sex is front and center as uh, the core um, causative issue in human motivations and dynamics um, and not secondary or collateral, but uh, of first importance and essential. And that uh, there are many secondary um, uh, little uh, parasite fish that go along with it and accompany it and like power and violence. And there are many tremendously significant accompaniments to the um, sexual drive, the erotic uh, libido drive, but the core is the sex itself. That is the core, and it's a huge evolutionary programmed thing that is first and foremost the number one driving thing in a person. You may not agree, and that's fine, but that's what I have come to believe and see. And uh, I think you even see it in Romans chapter 7 and in uh, in a great deal of what St. Paul is understanding about the human condition. But I also know uh, that... Um, that everybody seems to have an unangry side. 
even if it's sometimes very, very tiny and neglected and not even heard or known or seen. And uh, in the Crunch and Dez stories, you have an, a dramatic example of that side, the unangry side. Now, what is the secret of this? Well, this is the maxim that I'd like you to remember as you, if you're listening to this. This is the sort of apothegm, isn't that the word? This is the, the kind of... Uh, uh, aff- affirmation that I'm uh, that that I wish to to present to you, the listener. This mash was meant to. I'm so into Bobby Barris Pickett. May he rest in peace. I am so into Bobby Barris Pickett. L- listen to the Monster Swim. Just go on YouTube and listen to the Monster Swim, and it will. It just proves there is a God. But in any event, whether you do or not, this is my point. You can't be angry at what or whom you love. You can't be angry at something or someone you love. Now, I say that because that's simply the, the, the proposition here. Uh, you have to know, wh- whom do you love? Who do you love? I got nine to five. <laughs> who do you love? Who do you love? Well, um, if you know who you love, whom you love, you cannot be angry at them. You can be angry if you're ambivalent. You can be angry at the part of them that you have projected somebody else you don't love on them. If you love somebody but have projected someone whom you don't love or whom you hate onto them, you'll be angry at them. But you cannot, by definition and by experience, be angry at whom you love and you can't be angry at what you love. I have trolled through all of Philip Wiley's ranting polemical books which contain a great deal of visionary wisdom and prophetic insight in my opinion but not once have I seen a negative comment about his beloved wife of many many years whose name was Frederica Ballard Wiley, Ricky as he called her I haven't found one, I haven't found a single negative comment matter of fact he refers to her often very warmly lovingly, generously and positively she constantly appears, he wrote a book called The Innocent Ambassadors which recounted a trip he took I think in 1957 all around the world with his wife Ricky and I have it right here and it's a signed edition he, he signed it himself and it's a love letter to his wife, it's a valentine to his wife and it's embarrassing, it's a terrible book in many ways, it, it's full of a very pompous man who thought that he had some kind of vocation to instruct the rest of the world, not to mention his readers, about what's true, good, and, and what's bad about them. And it's a very pompous, patronizing book, uh, With, uh, however, with certain extraordinary passages in it and insights. But what I want to say about it is he never once pans Ricky. Ricky only is the most wonderful person, and he never doesn't love Ricky. And Ricky becomes the prototype for a character called Sari, S-A-R-I, the wife of Crunch Adams in the Crunch and Dez stories. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, he didn't like his father, and his father comes off very badly in a number of uh, the surrogate or the character who's supposed to symbolize his father, the minister uh, persona, in especially the book Opus 21. He obviously didn't like his father, or he had very mixed feelings about his father. Let's put it that way, because the Central word you get about ministers is that they are terrible. And so you, you don't, you can't be angry at someone whom you love. And that is proven by the Crunch and Dez stories and by Ricky 
Wiley. But what about you? I mean, are you, can you really, isn't there someone that you really love? It's your son, it's your daughter, it's uh, someone that you care for. There's a, a wonderful um, a moment in the very beautiful Jacques Demy French film from the early 60s. I have it right here, but I forget the date. I want to say 1963 or 64, maybe a little bit later, but maybe earlier, uh, called Bay of Angels, La Baie des Anges, Bay of Angels, in which a, a, uh, a, uh, a, a, a grown son has a fight with his dad about his gambling and uh, the father handles it completely wrong and basically through the father's very law coming down on his grown son about his possibility that the son might gamble, the son goes and completely ends up becoming a total uh, gambleaholic. I mean, a direct reaction to his father's coming on down on his only son's uh, attitude. He, uh, he completely destroys, uh, he forces his son into the arms of a gambling addiction. But at the end, there's a very beautiful thing. The, fa the son sort of writes a rather sad and somewhat deceptive letter in which he asks his father, who's completely alienated from him a while later, he said, I'm so, can I come home? Could you lend me some money? And I want to come home and I have a girlfriend, I, uh, <laughs> to say the least. The very beautiful, equally addicted, actually much more addicted, Jean Moreau, uh, uh, and uh, he says to his father, though, can I come home? Please take me back. And the father writes immediately back and says, I will, here's 50,000 francs. I, you can come back anytime. No questions. I will ask no questions. Now, it's very powerful. The father, who's an absolute, seen as just a dreadful, totally out of touch, angry man, says to his son, come back anytime. I will ask no questions. And here's money. In other words, the son is loved by the Father. The, you can't be angry for long at somebody you love. Now, this is what I want to ask you to do. Look at whom you are unequivocally not angry at. Is there anybody in your life who are, you're basically not angry at? Your daughter, your son, your, your wife, your husband, your mother, your father, your sister, your brother. It'll, it's one of those categories, your boss, your coworker, your friend, you name it. That's the key. You cannot be angry at the person you love. And because we know that Wiley adored saltwater fishing, it was sort of his great hobby. He became actually, I think, the chairman or president of the uh, Deepwater Fishers Association. He knew Ernest Hemingway through that and Mike Lerner and all these remarkable people. Um, you, you cannot be, he loved fishing. He loved nature. And you cannot be angry at nature if you love nature. And you cannot be angry at fish if you love fishing. And you cannot be angry at fishermen if you love to fish. And you cannot be angry at your wife if you love your wife. And therefore, uh, the answer to the question, what part of me isn't angry, with which I started the podcast, is the part that is filled by the person or the thing you love. That part isn't angry. And I, for one, would counsel anyone to get in there with the person or the thing or the subject which you truly love. And then you too will write your own version of the Crunch and Des classic stories of saltwater fishing. Thank you very much, and God bless.